0: In the spring of 2009, okay, I I attended the Gospel Coalition Conference in Chicago. So at this point, this was, I think, the second national conference that TGC had ever had. And I found myself at this conference struck by the words of one of the co-founders of this organization. So when I was, in 2006, when I was finishing up at Trinity, two men, D.A. Carson, Tim Keller banded together and, and, and met at the Ted's campus where I went to school and uh, they invited, they called together many different pastors, authors, thinkers, writers, theologians to form a coalition around the idea of the center, centrality of the gospel f- for all of life, okay, known as the gospel coalition. So when I attend this conference, I found myself struck by the words of the late great Tim Keller Someone who at this point I was just starting to hear really the last couple of years at this point for the first time, uh, he was becoming and would continue to become a very significant voice in my life. And, and I can't remember, you know, if he said these words during a sermon or if it was during a Q&A format, but um, the reason I was struck by, the, by what he said is that Tim had expressed something about the nature of grace that I perceived as both absolutely true, but also recognized as something that I had just not seen or understood, not fully anyways, at this, up to this point in my life as a Christian. So he shared that as he had conversations about God and the Bible with skeptics who lived in Manhattan. So that, that's been Tim Keller's ministry, planting a church in Manhattan with the desire to reach skeptics, those who are far from the Lord, those who, who don't know Jesus, those who have real serious doubts and questions about the nature of Christianity, and, and considering that's the direction the culture at large is heading, and there's no ignoring that, this is a very, this was at that point in time for me a very interesting ministry, an important and significant ministry that gave rise to us planting a church here in, with a lot of the same desire, but Tim had shared, you know, as he had conversations with these non-believing skeptics in Manhattan, he found them to be increasingly troubled by the biblical concept of grace. And, you know, for me at least, at the time, I found this to be really counterintuitive. Okay, so how could someone, the way that I thought about it, how could somebody possibly struggle with the concept of God's grace? And mercy, you know? Like, I think we can imagine friends who have maybe an objection related to to the Christianity, um, Christianity's moral code, the ethics of the Scriptures, the ethics of Jesus, right? Because unless you're viewing the world from a Christian worldview, unless you really see gospel as center, it makes sense that you're going to have questions related to, to the ethics of Christianity. Or we might have other friends who struggle with judgment, And that can make sense to us, like maybe the judgment that God used in the Old Testament or the kinds of descriptions of eternal judgment for those who who reject Jesus, eternal conscious torment, those kinds of doctrines. And I think we understand those struggles, you know, I, I do. I think we understand them because we see them even in the scriptures where Abraham doesn't understand God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we hear this in Genesis repeated refrain Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So we're to trust in the Lord in places where we don't understand so we can understand why our friends struggle with those kinds of concepts. But who's going to struggle with grace? You know? So I remember thinking that. And I'm paraphrasing here. I don't remember the exact words. But I heard him say and reference this point enough time, times over the years that it's really becoming ingrained in my consciousness as a pastor. So you've likely heard me say this to you in some form over coffee or even from the pulpit. But he said the reason people were so put off by the idea of God's grace was that if, if it's true that Christianity, you know, is centrally rooted in the sheer grace of God, that is to say, if the only reason someone comes to faith in Christ is because of grace, and it has nothing to do with me at all, there's no percentage of work, no matter how small the percentage is, there's no percentage of work that, that I have to do that I need to accomplish or contribute If it's all grace, then God has all authority over me, you know? Like, he can ask anything of me. He gets to call the shots, you know? And that's scary. Like, the accompanying illustration that Keller used that I think is going to be helpful in our text today is that of a taxpayer. It's something with which most of us are intimately familiar It's like, if you're a taxpayer, no, no, it doesn't mean in any sense that you're, like, the one who's primarily responsible to fund the police and fire departments and schools and, you know, civil and national defense. Like, it doesn't, like, fall mostly on your shoulders. In fact, you pay one very, very small portion of that. But because you contribute that amount, because you're a taxpayer, theoretically, the government can't just do whatever they want with you. You have rights. You're invested, you've contributed, you have skin in the game, you have rights that you can make use of as a citizen. The same thing could be true about like membership in a club or um, ownership of a company, right? You have rights that you can make use of. But the way the Scriptures speak of our relationship with God isn't in this taxpayer or contributor kind of way. You know, the way Jesus describes what it looks like to follow him is that we actually don't contribute anything in order to become his followers. In in point of fact, he draws us to himself by sheer grace. And that means that he has all authority, that he's in complete control, you know, that he calls the shots, that I have to follow everything that he says, that I'm not allowed to, like I'm not able in that kind of a scenario to pick this up and say, okay, so here are the things that I like and here's the stuff that I'm just gonna pass on. Not in this scenario you can't, right? And yet, we see in our text this morning, right? So it's like, it's entirely his work. It's not at all my work that brings us to faith in Christ. It's entirely his work and not at all my work that, that, that ushers in any aspect of his kingdom. Like imagine thinking, imagine the narcissism involved in thinking that something you do could usher in an aspect of the kingdom of an almighty eternal God, right? So it's like, if that's true then that has massive implications for God's people. And and so we see in our text this morning both of these realities. We see the sheer grace of God again, drawing us to himself by grace, but we also see a negative response to his grace from those who are listening to him, from those who are conversing with him. And we'll see all of that play out this morning in six parts of the narrative. Um, I should say, like, these six parts of the narrative are meant to show us the story arc, you know, the narrative arc. So we're going to just essentially let this story be told, but we're going to spend most of our time in the the third part of our narrative together. So as you look to the text, put some thought into this question. What answer does Jesus give us as we read? What answer does he give us in this text to those who might hear of his sheer grace and yet a fi- find it offensive or find it scary, find it fearful? Maybe because they desire to contribute in a way so that they, like, have rights. God can't just ask anything of me. I can kind of pick and choose what I want. Maybe because we're, just, we're afraid of the implications of that grace, but what answer does this text hold out to us for those who might hear this sheer grace and initially be fearful, be worried, be concerned, you know? What does it look like to ultimately submit to his control? So we we start to see that question answered in our first part of the narrative, verses 22 and 23. Look there with me now. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So as we often find, the first part of the narrative is the context. The context and as we've seen before, you know, John wants to do more in establishing the context than simply show us the time and location of the events in question. Like, he does that in the text, okay? We see it happen. He gives us the situational context. When is this happening? It's happening during the Feast of Dedication. So that's, this is important to establish, like, the time, the setting. Now some of you who grew up in the church might hear that setting, Feast of Dedication. You might initially scratch your head a bit and say, Feast of Dedication, I've never heard of that. You know, I'm not familiar with it. And that's understandable because, like, we don't find any Old Testament command for Israel to observe a Feast of Dedication. Like, as we review the Old Testament, we see a Feast of Tabernacles, and, you know, we've seen that in John's Gospel. We see the Passover. You know, there are these central feasts and celebrations that we see and recognize as, like, oh, yeah, the Old Testament feast, points forward to Jesus, but... Here we see a feast that wasn't authorized by the Hebrew Scriptures. It came about later, but it's also one that I guarantee you're familiar with. It's because of hearing about it in surrounding culture, although you know this feast by a different name. So by the time that Jesus is ministering in Jerusalem, this feast of dedication was still a relatively new institution among God's people. To give you some background, and and this background, if you've been with us at Gospel Life for a while... This background is going to be familiar to you. We talked about this when we went through Revelation because I think, John also authored Revelation, right? And I think that this is the time period that John's talking about when he speaks of 42 months or 1,260 days. Time times half a time in which there's this great tribulation against God's people. So if you remember, I argued that I don't think this is talking about a future seven-year. You know, we combine these 42 months with another thing in Daniel and we get seven years and it's a future tribulation. I said, I don't think that's what's happening. I think rather than pointing us forward to the specific seven-year period, I argue John's pointing us back to a prior 42-month period, Right? in which the Syrian tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes overran Jerusalem and then consecrated, uh, de- desecrated the temple, setting up a pagan altar inside the temple, establishing himself as, as a priest in that temple, sacrificing, slaughtering pigs on this this altar to pagans in the midst of the temple, like desecrating the temple in ways that Jerusalem had never experienced, the level of blasphemy and desecration that had never happened among God's people before. And you might think, okay, so it was a religious dispute. No, listen, during this time of Antiochus' rule, like it was brutal. Possessing in any form the Hebrew Scriptures, whether it was gathering together to orally retell, the Torah, or whether it was possession of scrolls, right? Possession in any sense of the Hebrew Scriptures was considered a, a capital offense, punishable by death. This was a, th- a threat Antiochus routinely made good on. He wanted to just squash the Judaism out of the Hebrew people. But this brutal rule had, also had the effect of creating a Jewish revolt, you know, in which many Jewish men banded together from this underground militia that got very, very good at guerrilla warfare you know surprise attacks and um under the leadership of judas maccabeus they grew strong he was known as judas the hammer they recaptured jerusalem and then after that what did they have to do right like the temple had been desecrated like nothing else in their history so what did they have to do they had to rededicate the temple Reconsecrate the temple. So they recaptured Jerusalem. They re-consecrated the temple to God. The people celebrated this rededication of the temple for eight days. It was decreed during this time that a similar eight-day feast of dedication would be celebrated during the month of Kislev, December, you know, November, December, in which they would hold a festival of lights, otherwise known as Hanukkah. So this detail does move the story along. It gives us the setting. It tells us, you know, it's December in Jerusalem, so it's cold outside, so it kind of drives Jesus indoors to walk inside of Solomon's porch, inside the temple, rather than outside. That's the situational context. But it's more than that. As we see, again, these details, the background of the Feast of Dedication in particular. There's more, but I don't have time to talk about it. I had to cut some stuff. But listen, it offers us a theological context. Okay, okay. Because listen, though we don't find Hanukkah or this feast of dedication in the Old Testament, we do see that once again, Jesus will establish himself in this text as the ultimate fulfillment of that feast. Like, yeah, he is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Like, and they point to him. And we see more of that in the text too. But also, yes, he's the fulfillment of Israel's history. Like, everything they've been anticipating up to this point. And I want you to think for a minute. What is Israel anticipating greatly at this point in history? The Messiah to come, to rescue them from Roman oppression. So think about this. Think about like what all of this means in the text. Like, think about this feast of dedication in terms of what it means for a nation waiting on their Messiah. And as we've said before, there was a fever pitch in Jerusalem during this time in history. They couldn't wait for the Messiah to come and lead them out of oppression against these horrible Roman tyrants. And so here they are in anticipation of that while they're collectively setting aside eight days to remember when Judas the Hammer led them out of oppression from a foreign nation, a foreign oppressor, a tyrant, and into freedom and independence, right? So like Jesus is going to enter himself into that in more than, more than one way, all right? And that actually moves us now from the context, secondly, to the confrontation, What happens in the midst of this context? Like, what do we see in the text? Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. All right, so once again, we see this phrase, the Jews, most of the time in John's account, This refers to the Jewish leaders that oppose Jesus' rule. It does not mean the Jews collectively as a people. In fact, Jesus' disciples are Jewish. Jesus himself is Jewish. Uh, Many of the followers who come and believe in this very text that we're going to read about this morning are Jewish. So it's talking about those who have power and authority, religious power and authority who oppose Jesus. It doesn't always mean that, though. So the question is, does this expression here refer to those who oppose Jesus? And I think we can see the answer right away in their question. Now you might read it initially and say, well, it doesn't seem so clear. You know, it doesn't seem so clear, Jeremy, right? Because we might say, aren't they just looking, are they like looking for more clarity? They're just asking Jesus to no longer keep them in suspense related to who he is, related to his identity. So that, and, and that makes sense, right? Because the sooner he tells them who he is, the sooner they can worship Him, respond to Him, follow Him, right? Well, no. The problem here is twofold. You know, first of all, if you've been with us in our John series for any amount of time at all, this this should probably read to you almost like a comedy where a person has been clear about something, like over the top almost clear about something over and over and over and over again and the person says something like, well, just, just tell me straight out. Tell me what you think. You know, like, that's what it reads like because Jesus couldn't have been more clear in a sense in just about every exchange related to his identity he's he has done everything short of saying because his hour has not yet come like i am the messiah come from god and i am god himself like short of that he's essentially told them and we're going to see that in his response to them in a minute but more to the point the second problem is we need to look at their motivation for asking such a question because it's it's not that they don't know. That's what we're gonna see. Like, it's not that they don't know what he's said about himself. They actually have picked up on it. Like, given how they're about to respond to him when he once again provides straightforward statements about his identity, it's pretty obvious they don't desire this clarity from Jesus so that they can get about the business of worship. You know, by the time we reach the end, we see the reason they want to make himself clear to just say the words, yes, I'm the Messiah of God. And the Messiah of God is God himself entered into human history, which would absolutely be blasphemy, right? The reason they want that, if, if, if he's not God, it would absolutely be blasphemous, right? For anyone to claim this but God himself. Despite the fact that if they're paying any attention at all, they would have heard him say exactly that. The reason they want him to say it is they want to get about the business of attack. That's what they want. So, They want to obtain an unambiguous statement from Jesus about who he is so that they can use it in in a court, so that they can bring it before the authorities, so that they can charge him. You know, they want ammunition. It's, It's like, it's why it's a good idea to have an attorney present if you're ever sitting through a deposition, if you're ever being questioned in a deposition, because it's like you may have an attorney from the other side of whatever trial who's trying to, He's saying, like, oh, we just want you to be clear. Truth is, you know, just tell us the truth. They're trying to trap you into into contradicting yourself, into perjuring yourself so that they can discredit you as a witness. Something very similar is happening here. So that's the confrontation in the text. These Jewish leaders who oppose Jesus are asking for him to give them what they believe would amount to a confession of wrongdoing so they can take clear action against him despite the fact that he's innocent of any wrongdoing. Okay. Um, How does Jesus respond? Here we move from the context and the confrontation to now thirdly the claim in verses 25 to 30 because Jesus responds. So look at verse 25. Jesus responds here much like we might expect him to respond given what we all know he's already said about himself to these people, right? I told you and you do not believe, right? I've already told you. Do we really need to go back? Do you not remember? They do, but like it's, Jesus isn't saying he told them plainly because his hour's not yet come, but simply like, have you missed these I am claims? Jesus is kind of calling their bluff, you know, like have you missed these I am claims that I've been making about myself? Have you missed the words I spoke after healing the the man at the pool? Have you missed, or or healing the, the man blind from birth? Have you missed what he said about me and what others have testified about me? Everything that I talked about in John chapter, in chapters 5 and 6, right? Like, have you missed what these signs signify? Obviously, they haven't. They haven't entirely missed them because they've already set out to attempt to arrest him formally. They've taken up stones to stone him for saying some of these things. So the central issue here isn't that they've like, they're seeking understanding so that they can worship. It's not that they've misunderstood, and you know, a little clarity would go a long way here if Jesus would just say, look, this is what I'm saying so that they can you know, respond fairly. Central issue isn't misunderstanding. It's unbelieving hearts. He's told them, and they do not believe. I told you, and you do not believe. And by rejecting him, they reject the Father, he says, essentially. But then we get to verses 26 and 27, and we see Jesus get to the root as to why they reject him. And this is really, I think, the center of the text this morning. The center of the text in these two verses, the key to understanding what it is that Jesus is saying about himself, what this means for God's people. Because he really gets to the root as to why they're rejecting him. I, I said that we would spend some time here last week because this really, these texts really highlight something that can be difficult for us to understand about the grace of God, you know? But you do not believe. Look at verses 26 and 27. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So if you remember last week I said that in telling us that that the shepherd calls the sheep by name, at least part of what Jesus was telling us, Jesus telling his listeners and his readers, is that in some sense he knows them before they hear his call and response. Like that that Jesus is the one who calls us to himself rather than something within us, you know? It's Jesus who initiates belief. It has to be because what does the rest of of John said, especially chapter one and then building on that in every chapter up to this point about our hearts, about the human heart? What does the scriptures testify about the human heart? That apart from Christ, our hearts are wicked and depraved. We couldn't possibly know God. We couldn't possibly know him. And so our identity as his sheep, our identity is solely dependent in his work in drawing us to himself by grace. Has to be. And not anything, not anything about us at all. And I said we'd see that more clearly in the grammar this week. Look at it again. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, I'm not splitting hairs here. You might think I am, but I'm not like... Very intentional on the part of Jesus. Very important. It's not proof texting. This is really a summary statement of how the scriptures describe faith. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. And I want us to compare these two things. He doesn't say, You are not my sheep because you do not believe. Though, doubtlessly, that's true in some sense. You know, like, it's true that if we believe, we're his sheep. So he, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, You're not my sheep because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. It's important to unpack the difference between those two statements because it highlights what theologians throughout the centuries have referred to as the doctrines of grace. In other words, if Jesus were to tell them, you are not my sheep because you do not believe, while in some sense accurate, like we need to believe in order to become a sheep, where would Jesus be placing the primary activity that leads to our identity as sheep he'd be placing it would it be with him or with us you know would it be with his sheer grace or my gracious response to his sheer grace you know and and the reality is it'd be with us he'd be telling us that the activity of our working up enough faith leads then to our identity as sheep as his followers as those who are followers of christ i want to be clear it's true in the scriptures because they're you know We might have some brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with how I'm interpreting that. It's okay. Because it's clear. It's clear that um, faith itself in the New Testament is never described as a work in that sense. Not in the sense that Paul means when he talks about works don't justify, faith does. Okay, so faith and work are actually opposite. Faith isn't an activity in that sense. Right? Paul differentiates between faith and work. He makes it clear that faith alone is itself not an activity. But listen, there's a strong sense in which sometimes we think, and this is why I think this matters so much, and why the New Testament goes to such lengths to show us where even our faith comes from, that it couldn't come from within us. Because there's a, a sense in which sometimes we think that our faith is rooted within us like our soft hearts and we talk about this a lot at Gospel Life, but it's important, like, it's important reminders because we so, so just dominantly refer back to this in our own hearts, right? I was so soft-hearted, you know, I was so responsive. And so the question I would ask you this morning, if you're really trying to figure this out is, like, this is like, what, this is the question that I think cuts down to the core of it. It's like, what's the difference, really, I want you to ask yourself honestly, if you're a believer, and if you're not a believer and you're here this morning, like, I want you to hear this question as the reason you should, when you attend a gospel-centered church, you should attend a place where there is not a judgmental attitude against your unbelief, okay? But for Christians, what's the difference, here's the question, what's the difference, the primary difference, really, between you and a non-believer? What's the the difference between me and a non-believer? Because listen, if the primary difference is that I believed rightly and therefore I'm his sheep, right? You are not my sheep because you did not believe that kind of idea. If the primary difference is that I believed rightly and someone else didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. In some sense, the primary difference is faith. But listen, where does that faith come from? If it's, if it's because like log- I, I heard the gospel and logically I figured it out and so I believed. Or I heard the gospel and, and, and like the tenderness in my heart was cut to the core and I was just more responsive than other people. You know, if the primary difference is that my heart is so so soft and receptive, then at least in some sense, I'm the reason. But listen, Jesus wants to show us where our faith itself comes from. Where is even our faith itself rooted? And this makes all the difference in the world. Like, where does my activity fit as a Christian? My doings, even my believing. Does our identity precede our activity of belief, or does our activity of belief precede our identity as sheep? And I would say it has to be—it has to be our identity as sheep preceding the activity of belief—and and it does make all the difference. Look, it's a really good thing that God does not—he doesn't doesn't respond to me and relate to me the way that I relate to the Chicago Bears. Okay, so listen i fully acknowledge that my relationship with the Bears is totally works-based. And not only so, but like they go on a losing streak and man, I rip off my hoodie and my hat and I throw it in the closet. You don't under, see some of it is, some of you just won't understand this. And it's true that like they did this to me, so I don't really feel too bad about it. But but, um, just years and years of torture. But it's like you know how much more torture have I given the Lord? But nevertheless, I I approach um, I approach the bears with this very work-based mentality, and I just I I don't want to talk to them. Okay, so that's, that's, and then and then they, they win forty to twenty on Thursday night football, and it's like oh, maybe I'll get that hoodie back out of the closet, you know, and, and wear it around town. Finally, totally works based totally just like their activity precedes their identity with me as like whether or not I'm going to be a fan, okay. But then on Saturday, my sons played football, you know. And they're both quarterbacking for their teams on Sunday. And man, it was exciting and fun to watch. I got some video if you want to see afterwards. Um, (laughs) And uh, I got a lot of good video and a lot of good uh, pictures. But it's like, honestly, like there's nothing that could have happened that wouldn't have been making my heart rejoice, you know. At, at like watching them play and you know even in the struggle of it even in like the throwing of interceptions or the throw you know like like bad decisions or what, you just your heart is with them man why because their identity as my sons absolutely precedes their activity as football players you know or what it is that they do that they're trying to make me proud like this makes all the difference in the world in terms of how God relates to us our identity as sheep precedes our activity of faith. Where is even our faith rooted? For those of us who might be tempted to pat ourselves on the back for our faith, we need to hear Jesus tell these people who don't believe, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. That is to say, our faith itself is rooted not in us, but in him. Our identity is those called by name, to the shepherd by grace, precedes everything, and it changes everything. And if it weren't for that, none of us would believe. Now listen, this might... Okay, it might be one of those times when the idea of sheer grace is a little scary. It it might cause some of us to start thinking, for instance, well, what about free will? I think we do have to talk about this because of what Jesus says. You know, he says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep, right? What about free will? like... How is it possible that I could have free will to to love the Lord, to be held responsible for my actions, and yet my salvation is entirely rooted in his grace rather than in my gracious response? Because if we're going to say it's not my gracious response because that's something about me, it's God's sheer grace, that comes with implications in terms of how we think about this. So how can I have free will? How can I... What does this say about my responsibility? Should I just shrug my shoulders and say, well, if I'm his, I'm his, and if I'm not, I'm not, so I'll just live however I want according to what Jesus says here. No, like, this is important to talk about. So Justin Taylor has this excellent article at the Gospel Coalition. I think he, yeah, 2013 is when he wrote it, so it's been up for a while, but I checked, it's still up. So you can go and, and, and read this in full. It's short, but I think it'll be helpful to you. In which he, um, he references... You know, philosophers like John Feinberg, who is my Christian ethics prophet at TEDS, as well as theologians like Don Carson. And so in this article, he highlights for us two propositions that are taught and exemplified in the scriptures that are going to help us. Um, Don't feel like you have to write all this down. If if you've got a phone, you can zoom in and and take a a screenshot. Um, And and then you can even, like, on a lot of phones, text or copy the the photo and text it elsewhere. Two propositions taught in scripture— both of them are true. First of all, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. So we, we see this play out in Scripture all the time. God is sovereign. He's sovereign in his, his election of believers. He's sovereign in those whom he draws to himself. He's sovereign in sheer grace and mercy toward us, nothing about us but everything about him. But this sovereignty in Scripture, show me a verse, because it doesn't exist, that reduces human responsibility, that in some sense says, therefore, I guess you're, you know, what's going to happen to you is what's going to happen to you, and you're, you're not called to account. And, and so, likewise, number two, and these are both true at the same time. God is absolutely sovereign. His sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. Human beings are responsible creatures, number two. They choose they believe, they disobey, they respond, and there's moral significance to their choices. But human responsibility never functions in Scripture. Again, show me the verse. To diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. These two things work together. In fact, like, we see this. We see Jesus say, say to the people, he says, like, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who stones the prophets and kill those who are sent to it how i've longed to gather you as a hen would gather their chicks under their wings but you were unwilling he doesn't say how i've longed to do that but like you know you're not my you know you just were never mine and so it's not really your fault i'm not holding you responsible he he doesn't say that he says how I've, how i longed to do that how i longed to gather you but you were unwilling Your response was unwilling. Therefore, your house is being left to you desolate. Jesus gives judgment on the basis of moral responsibility. At the same time, that entire chapter is is rooted in the sovereignty of God in all things. That he knows all these things are gonna happen and that he is indeed driving these things along. So, okay, in this commentary on John, Carson said something similar to this that made made me think of this article. This is what he writes. He says, neither Jesus nor John in this text, right, means to reduce the moral responsibility of the opponents in the slightest. All right, they're not saying, Jesus is not saying this to make them feel like disconnected in terms of their responsibility, like they're not responsible. That they are not Jesus' sheep does not excuse them, it indicts them. But the predestinarian note, that is to say this idea that it's God who does this, it's God who initiates and not us, ensures that even their massive unbelief is not surprising. It is to be expected and falls under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. In other words, we can trust, we can trust that even while God is in complete control, even though sheer grace means he can ask anything of us, anything. It means like we're not able to just, you know, I'm going to come to this the way that I, you know, the way that I want to as someone with rights because I have skin in the game. No, we can't do that. Even though it means he can ask us anything, he's good, and he loves us. Is not the judge of all the earth right? Will he not do what is right? Right? He loves us. And we see that centrally because of what he did at the cross, what he did in coming to earth to take our punishment, to stand in our place. What did Jesus accomplish for us? Like, Jesus doesn't just say, there's this like cold, predestinarian idea that like, I've come and saved by grace and mercy those who believe and those who don't. I've, you know. He doesn't say that. He comes with this good news. Like, Where do we see the goodness of God's grace to us? Look at verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Like, there's this, again, this shepherding of like, I know my sheep. Listen to what it does. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hands. Do you, do you hear how good of good news this is that's held out to the believer? And listen, we're, we are given life in Jesus by sheer grace that begins now and goes on for all eternity, and, and for those of us who, are, who, who respond by faith, nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Nothing can undo the work of Christ. For those of us who are genuinely genuinely his sheep nothing can undo the work that Christ has done see if it's if it's partially my work well we all know that can be undone i mean i don't know what you do for your job your occupation but we all have these experiences daily you guys where the work that we do can become undone and then we got to do it all over again it's not infinite it's very finite like our family sets aside a friday once a month to clean the house, to pick everything up, you know, to put it all away. And it is a chore, and it's hard work, you know, and it's like we're doing a lot of work. You don't know how much time that takes to get undone, right? <laughs> with six kids, like, oh, it's not a lot. And, and with me too. Like, it doesn't take a lot of time for like all this work. My work can be undone. But this is sheer grace. It can never be undone. Why? Look at verses 29 to 30. My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus tells us, because of who I am, this can't be undone. This thing that I've just told you, this incredible piece of good news for you, this thing that's like rock solid, irreducible, it can't go away. Like if the work of an an eternal God is the one who did this, you can take it to the bank like it's Jesus's work at the cross it's the father's work in drawing us to himself it's the spirit's work in showing us Christ that our hearts might respond that we might be cut to the core and see our sin and our need for a savior like and it's here that we see why what we believe about Jesus matters in terms of how we live like the the men are are seeing that as we, we look through first john because one of the themes of first john it's like what what you believe about Jesus really matters for daily life. We see that in the text here. Jesus makes this claim, I and the Father are one. And that claim changes everything. Changes everything. Because it means that his work will be accomplished. The work of the Son, the work of Jesus will be accomplished. Nothing can stop it. No one can stand against it because he is God entered into human history. And to show us this is the case in real time, we now move from this claim just really briefly to the consequence of this claim, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So we don't want to belabor the point. We've seen this before. Jesus is claiming to be God himself. They, they very much understand that to be the case. Uh, they, they consider it to be blasphemous, as we'll see in a minute, so they take up stones. Uh, death being the penalty of blasphemy, okay. He shows us then, fifthly, the correlation. So here's where Jesus does something remarkable. He shows us the correlation between what he's saying and now the very feast that they're celebrating, you know. He's rooting himself, not just in the Old Testament text, you have to understand, he's rooting himself like in their very history. He's saying like all of this is pointing forward to me. And and this can be confusing. So look at verses 32 to 39. It can be confusing because, you know, Jesus in verse 34 responds to their charge of blasphemy by quoting a passage that refers to Israel when they were receiving the law as God's Little G, which really is like the idea is sons of the Almighty, sons of God. So when he does this, is he simply saying that this is all he means when he's talking about himself as the Son of God? Like, oh, I don't mean it any differently than how you mean it when Israel refers to itself as sons of the Almighty, those who were given the law. Is that what he's saying? No, no, no. This is what's known in in philosophy as like argument from the lesser to the greater. He's quoting a passage. So if you, if you go to this psalm in particular, you'll see a passage in which Israel is referred to as the sons of the Almighty, and then immediately after, it talks about their downfall and sin, you know? And so listen, the, the idea is, if the failed people of Israel could be referred to in this sense, how much more could he be called the one who is the one true son of God sent from heaven... The one who can say, I and the Father are one in a unique kind of way. And in case anyone misunderstands, he tells them that everything they celebrate points to him. Look at verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Think about that. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated? What are they celebrating? The consecrating of the temple, the re-consecrating, the the, the, um, dedication of the temple celebrating the rededication of the temple after it was defiled, but here stands before them the true and better temple, the one who comes to mediate before God and man, the one who's been set apart for all eternity, past by means of his existence as God himself, and they've entirely missed him, which is what we find finally at the conclusion. Verses 39 to 42, starting in verse 40, really. He went away, again, across the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him. So you see this response by faith, response to his grace and mercy. Jesus proclaims his grace, they respond. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So this prompts question to the reader and this is really at the base of our text today how will we respond to the sheer grace of God in the gospel how will we respond to his grace what does it do within us you know when we talk about the sheer grace of God what does that do you know like even as we approach the table together will you consider how do you respond to his body broken for you his blood shed for you that it's entirely what he's done and not what you've done you know like if it's by faith If we respond to that grace by faith, do we do it knowing that even that faith itself is the result of God's grace? And do we see the difference that that makes in terms of how we relate to the world around us? But not just that, but like our joy and our our, our life with God when we really see what he's done. If we're tempted to reject him, do we not see the goodness that he holds out to us that can never be removed because of who he is? is. And so we pray that the Spirit would do a work in us that we'd respond in faith, that we'd be cut to the heart, that we'd throw ourselves on God's mercies. Lord, as we hear of your grace, would you do a work in our hearts that allows us to receive it in Jesus' name? Amen.